The Monsters That Made Us is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For all things movies, music, media, monsters, and more, head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Today we're heading to London, England, where Robert Griffin, a lunatic suspected of murdering two orderlies and a nurse before escaping from a Cape Town mental institution, is currently at large and seeking vengeance against two acquaintances that he believes double-crossed him while on safari several years prior. With the help of Dr. Peter Drury, a scientist who has discovered the secret of invisibility, Griffin embarks on a quest to take back what was rightfully his and make those responsible pay for their treachery. But how many will have to die before he gets what he wants? Keep your eyes peeled and join us as we track down yet another Griffin in The Invisible Man's Revenge. To a new world of gods and monsters. Listen to them. Children of the night. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! By studying these and other species, we add to our knowledge of how life evolved, how it adapted itself to this world. He went for a little walk. He should have seen his face. <laughs> Welcome to the Monsters That Made Us, the podcast where we celebrate the spooktacular characters and films in the Universal Studios Classic Monster series. Today we're talking about 1944's The Invisible Man's Revenge. I'm the invisible Dan Cologne, and joining me as always is my co-host, the visible but possibly insane monster Mike Manzi. How are you, Mike? Now you see me, now you don't, now you see me again. How's it going, Dan? <laughs> Good to be here tonight. So we are up to our fourth Invisible Man film. Wow. We've seen this concept applied to various genres, including noir, slapstick comedy, uh, a war spy thriller, all to varying degrees of success. And now, for the first time since the original, we're back to mostly horror. Now, I've seen this one once before, uh, but admittedly, it's, it's maybe the one in this entire series that I remember the least. So I effectively went into it with fresh eyes this time. And I gotta say, despite a really fun concept and some top-notch special effects work from John P. Fulton, I gotta say, I was a little bit disappointed here. I really liked John Hall in Invisible Agent, and I was very excited to see him play against type here. But I thought he was kind of flat. And similarly to the way you felt about Son of Dracula, I felt that there was a lot of information that we just don't get, making some of these characters' motivations a little bit confusing and the comedic elements we have to talk about those well i think some of those were enjoyable in their own merits you know they seem a little bit out of place here effectively kills the tension and and grinds everything to a halt now i know this was your first time with the invisible man's revenge mike so i'm really curious to know if you felt similarly or if maybe you loved it what'd you think well i didn't love it but i don't hate this one i think last episode uh son of dracula really kind of threw me for a loop i was very open-minded and ready for anything this time around you know the invisible man series has been pretty good so far and lots of interesting types of genre picks that they tried to go with and yeah you know i'm on board for most of this but i definitely get confused again at times not as much but it feels like things are are missing or information comes and goes 
doesn't mean much. Characters just kind of disappear in the middle right. of the movie. Yeah, it's it's kind of off balanced in its attempt at humor versus melodrama, and that ultimately is what it kind of feels mostly like. I know it's kind of trying to feel more like a noir crime film, and I, and I wonder is like is all horror just inherently crime to begin with? <laughs> Possibly, but nevertheless, this felt like it was almost going for more of like a soap opera even, or like an episode of like Days of Our Lives at times. <laughs> so yeah, there's a lot to talk about here. Not all bad, uh, but not all good either. But I, I was definitely like more pleased than I thought I'd be watching this. Like there, there are some really cool moments. I like what John Carradine's doing, and there's just a lot more to talk about. Yeah, to touch on your soap opera analogy, it, I hadn't thought about it that way until you just said it, but you're right. It is very insular in its scope, right? I mean, you have a guy, an insane person, who finds himself invisible, capable of pretty much anything. We've seen them go on these like megalomaniacal rants with dreams of world domination and all sorts of grand ideas about what their future is going to be. Here we have a crazy person who is only interested in getting this money that he's owed and, and terrorizing just the members of this family. It's a very small, intimate story. So I agree with you there. It's definitely got a soap opera uh, quality to it. And I do think that the story is very interesting right off the bat. I think it, to have a character who's already insane, right? We don't have to worry about the serum turning a, a good man crazy, right? We have a guy who's already a little bent and, you know, he feels wronged and, and I'm excited to see him get what he wants. But yeah, this movie kind of sets up a, a lot of stuff and it doesn't really pay it off in any kind of satisfying way, at least in my opinion. So while it does have a solid foundation, I think the execution leaves a lot to be desired, unfortunately. Yeah, as it is with most of these movies at this stage in the game, I feel, you know, like a lot of great ideas and a lot of cool concepts, but they just don't have like the production power uh, or the value behind it that they should have, that they really deserve. But yeah, I really like that point you make. We'll probably talk about more about how this character already begins insane. And also um, the kind of like, yeah, very close-knit issues going on between the main characters. There's just like familiar stuff here that I found interesting that I was ready to explore. So I had my fingers crossed from the start. Let's get into the backstory here. So Universal first announced The Invisible Man's Revenge on June 10th, 1943. Initially, they had hoped to bring back Claude Rains for the lead role, but of course, by this point, it was highly unlikely that he would have been interested. You know, his career was already uh, far and away above, you know, B horror films. So I don't think there was any chance they were going to get Claude Rains. Instead, Universal cast John Hall, who we have already seen as the Invisible Agent. And by this point, he had become very well known for his roles alongside Maria Montez in a bunch of campy Technicolor adventure films. Now, prior to shooting, Universal struck a $7,500 deal with H.G. Wells for two more Invisible Man sequels to be made sometime between July 1943 and October 1951. Unless there's another film that was planned that I don't know about, I have to assume that second film became Abbott and Costello Meet the Invisible Man, which was released in 1951. So by December... 14th, 1943, the finished script written by Bertram Milhauser was sent to the Breen office so they could make their cuts, which included scenes with excessive gruesomeness. There was a deletion of the offensive word shyster, and there were a few other dialogue changes as well. So actually pretty tame by the Breen standards, right? Like we're used to a lot more extreme material being cut out, but I, I think this is par for the course for them. These changes kind of make sense. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot more implied violence, which I guess goes hand in hand with most Invisible Man movies. 
Now, this is Bertram Milhauser's only Universal monster movie, but it's still very much in his wheelhouse. I took a quick look at his IMDb page, and it showed a number of mysteries and thrillers, uh, including many of Basil Rathbone's Sherlock Holmes films. So knowing that, I can understand why Universal would hire a guy like him to write this movie. I was a little surprised that it's his only one, though. I feel like this is sort of what they're trying to do now. They're creating these tight, serialized thriller-type movies, and they only hired him for this one. Well, it's interesting to have an outsider's perspective in a way. Like, we get, like, someone who hasn't done anything before won't do anything ever again, so it's just kind of a very unique snapshot of his point of view of the Universal Universe. Yes. Now, in the director's chair and the producer's chair, we've got Ford Beebe. We last saw him as the producer for Son of Dracula. I mentioned in our previous episode that Beebe had a ton of experience with Green Hornet and Flash Gordon serials, so I can also see why he was a good fit for this material as well. I, I don't know if I mentioned this on that episode or not, but one of the serials that he directed or was involved in is The Phantom Creeps with Bella Lugosi. So... Oh, yep. If I didn't mention that then, I'm mentioning it now. <laughs> and if I did, you hear it again. So production officially began on January 10th, 1944, and lasted just over five weeks, wrapping about mid-February with John P. Fulton left to finish the effects. To go through our principal cast here, again, we have John Hall as Robert Griffin. No relation to the original Jack Griffin from the original Invisible Man. They just borrowed the name, I guess, because people would have that name recognition, but there's absolutely no relation to any previous Invisible Man movie. That really confused the hell out of me. Before we know where he was, they almost act like it's the same guy from the first movie, you know, yeah. where it was like, we sort of thought you were a goner. And it's like, so did we, what's he doing back? But <laughs> it's a different character. So to recap, the movies that are connected, at least by characters, we've got the original Invisible Man. The uh, Invisible Man Returns has his brother as the doctor, right? Remember, he was he was the one yep. with the serum. And then Invisible Agent involves the original Invisible Man's grandson. So the original Griffin like serum travels through those movies. But then Invisible Woman sort of does away with any continuity whatsoever. And then we have this one, which also kind of completely ignores any continuity. They're just borrowing the name Griffin here. The serum is invented by a completely different character. So yeah, very confusing. <laughs> so confusing because why wasn't the scientist in this movie just the Griffin and right. swap those two characters? Like it's so simple. I was watching the movie kind of just scratching my head about it. So we've got Lester Matthews as Sir Jasper Herrick. He was a British actor who had more than 180 credits to his name. We've previously seen Matthews in Werewolf of London, where he played Eddie's old childhood sweetheart, Paul Ames. Oh, nice. Welcome back. I did not recognize him from Werewolf of London, but it also it's been, what, like 10 years difference, right? So he's yeah. aged since then, and we only saw him in the one movie, so I was happy to see him come back. Yeah, I like this character a lot, too. Like, he basically spends the whole movie having a panic attack. Yeah, yes. <laughs> and he plays it very well. He's sort of the Cedric Hardwick character in this one, which I don't know if he was channeling Cedric Hardwick at all here, but if he was, I think he did a great job. One of those, like, super billionaire type of 
people, you know? <laughs> yes. Gail Sondergaard played Irene Herrick. She was an American actress and also was the first ever recipient for the Best Supporting Actress Oscar. Whoa, awesome. I love what she does in this, the, the amount of time she's here. I don't know what happens to her character, but she's playing the best, I feel, when she's on screen. She won that Oscar for the 1936 film, Anthony Adverse. It was her film debut, which is all the more impressive to me. Excellent, yeah. She was regularly cast in supporting roles throughout the 30s and 40s, including The Cat and the Canary and The Mark of Zorro, before her second Best Supporting Actress nomination for Anna and the King of Siam in 1946. This was her only Universal Monster film, but she was no stranger to the genre as she also appeared in The Black Cat, The Spider Woman, and The Climax for Universal. Cool. I want to check those out because, again, no joke, like, she's not in this movie very much, but I think what she does in certain scenes is just incredible. So I can't wait to talk about those scenes. So just talking about Gail here, and I just clicked on, like, her Google search, and an image of her came up as a witch, and I clicked on that, and I don't know, it says that she did a screen test for The Wizard of Oz and was the original Wicked Witch, or at least was in the running to play the Wicked Witch of the West. So, you know, we had the Wicked Witch of the West in an Invisible Man movie already. This is another Wicked Witch of the West appearing in another Invisible Man movie. I'm loving this trend. That's really awesome, actually. Like, we've already like established that we think she's a very talented actor, maybe one of the better actors in this movie. I had no idea that she was up for The Wicked Witch, but I could absolutely see that because so much of her performance in this just kind of has that nefarious tone, even though the character is supposedly not guilty of leaving a man to die out in the jungle. Yeah, I could absolutely see her as The Wicked Witch. That would have been great. It says, which makeup test number two, this picture that I found. And yeah, there's a bunch of stuff online about her as the Wicked Witch. So in her IMDb bio, it says she was originally cast as the Wicked Witch. She felt she was not right for that role. Okay. That's cool, though. All right. I have to say, well, I mean, we'll get to it, but I think my issue with the Herricks is a script issue, not a performance issue, because I think that they've made choices that are really strong and clear, but the script doesn't really support them. And I'll explain what I mean when we get there. But I think they are some of the strongest actors we've got here in this cast. And speaking of strong actors, we've got John Carradine, of course, as Dr. Peter Drury. He is, without a doubt, one of the most famous names in classic horror. Maybe one of the most famous names we'll discuss on this show outside of Lugosi and Karloff. I typically think of him in the same way as, you know, Vincent Price and Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing and those guys, and of course, Boris Karloff. He had a much more prolific career than that would suggest. Now, we've seen him uh, in a couple of films already. Uh, he showed up in the original Invisible Man and The Bride of Frankenstein, and we will see him again in The Mummy's Ghost, which is our, our next episode. But I think most people listening to this show know him as Dracula. We will get to that when we get to House of Frankenstein. But for those not familiar, John Carradine was the patriarch of the Carradine family. Most people would probably be familiar with his son David Carradine from Kung Fu and Kill Bill. But they had a whole family of actors like the Barrymores. John Carradine had a long career in films, predominantly in thrillers and B-grade horror. However, he 
did also appear in big profile films such as The Grapes of Wrath, Stagecoach, The Ten Commandments. He was a prolific stage actor and often toured with his own Shakespeare company. He also appeared on stage in A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, and a whole slew of others. And honestly, uh, it might be best to just scan his wiki page or his IMDb page <laughs> because there's really like so much more than we really have time for here. I love what he's doing in this movie. It's so great to be able to see him front and center in one of these, finally, yeah. like getting his own character. We'll talk later about why they might have not made this guy Dr. Griffin, you know, mm -hmm. um, even though he doesn't end up turning invisible. Like, I also feel like this character might have some inconsistencies. However, I just love his introduction. It's one. It might be one of my favorite character introductions to any character we've had in any of these movies okay mm -hmm. like and that's no joke just like when we get there just the lighting the the dialogue the mood the atmosphere is just top-notch perfect i feel like i'm right back in line with the best of the universal horror stuff at least for a fleeting moment yeah and uh i mean you know this about me mike but my favorite movie of all time is back to the future and that introduction had shades of 1950 Doc Brown. Dude, I, I thought Doc <laughs> Brown and Einstein because of him and his dog too. Definitely. Yes. Like when Marty shows up and he doesn't know who this kid is and he's like, come in, I gotta, we're gonna do an experiment. Right, I, I, need, a, I need a subject, anyone will yes. do, and you just happen to come along. <laughs> Yeah, you're right. I think that introduction is, is incredible. And I just, I love the similarities there between that particular scene and, and the scene in, in Back to the Future. So yeah, love it. Now, one thing I found interesting about John Carradine, I didn't know this, but he hated horror films, despite the fact that they put food on his table and they helped fund his Shakespeare company. I didn't know this, but I mean, people, this may be a thing people know. And when he was asked by a British fan magazine, like which of his own horror films was his favorite, his response was The Invisible Man's Revenge. Oh, awesome. I have to assume that it's because this is like the one horror movie where he had like a legitimate role and wasn't playing a monster or a villain. You know, he got to play kind of a quiet scientist. Yeah, he's a little mad. He's got a touch of evil. That's true. He does kill a dog to bring his own dog back from invisibility. So yeah, not totally without fault, but for the most part, I think in terms of the horror roles he's had, this definitely stands apart. Uh, that's interesting because, like, just looking at his stuff, like, I, I've seen a lot of the westerns he was in, but not mm -hmm. a lot of the horror stuff he was in. So he was, I guess, maybe he had his foot in both worlds like that equally. Yeah, he, he, was, uh, he was a great cowboy and he's a great mad scientist. So hats off. We've got Alan Curtis as Mark Foster. He was an American actor from Chicago, over 50 films to his credit. He originally was a model before becoming an actor. He appeared in some local newspaper ads and then became noticed by the Hollywood studios and was given all kinds of roles. He didn't really stick to one particular genre. He was a romantic lead in Abbott and Costello's first hit film, Buck Privates. He was also the composer Franz Schubert in The Great Awakening in 1941. Uh, his first chance as a leading man came when he replaced John Garfield in the production of Flesh and Fantasy in 1943. In that film, Curtis played a ruthless killer opposite Gloria Jean. However, the studio cut their performances from the final film version. So I like this guy. I liked his mustache. <laughs> Got a shout out representing the mustache. Not just him, but John Hall also yes. with the mustache. These guys could be brothers in this movie. I got them confused a lot at one point when they're both running around 
Visible, but when Invisible Man exclaimed, like, I know just the guy whose blood type to use or whatever, I was like, of course it's Mark, because, like, you guys, you could just basically slip into that role. Like, you are the same guys. <laughs> like, they, at least to me, had very similar types. I mean, if, if ever there was a time to argue for a love triangle, this might have been it, because both men look so similar that it could have been interesting to have these two guys who kind of resemble each other, at least that mustache, um, going after the same woman. But... I'm not going to necessarily say that a love triangle is ever going to make anything better. Could have been an interesting choice here. In 1953, his career was cut short, unfortunately. He had a routine kidney operation at St. Clair's Hospital in Manhattan. But several hours after the surgery, he died for four minutes when his heart failed. He was revived and seemed to be improving, but then died five days later at the age of 43. So that's unfortunate. But a fun piece of trivia that is relevant to the show, for one year, he was married to Ilana Massey, who we know from Invisible Agent and from Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman. So I thought that was cool that he was married to her, but that they were married in 1941, divorced in 1942. Fun bit of trivia there for fans of Ilana Massey. We've got Leland Hodgson as Sir Frederick Travers, the chief constable. Not in the movie a ton, but I felt like he was worth mentioning. Another popular character actor. He had over 130 credits, most of them supporting roles. And like screenwriter Bertram Milhauser, Hodgson was another regular player in the Basil Rathbone Sherlock Holmes films. Okay, I can see that. We've got Evelyn Ankers, the Queen of the Bees, as Julie Herrick. We've talked about her ad nauseum on this show, but to get the most out of that, if you haven't listened yet, our Wolfman episode, we really go fully in depth on her. Yeah, for Evelyn Ankers this time around, I think her portrait gets more screen time than she does. Yeah. So very disappointed. I remember you being very disappointed in the amount of screen time she had in Son of Dracula, and it's even less here. And the same thing happens to the character who plays her mom. She just gets like removed from the film. It's like a curse or something. For what it's worth, you know, she wasn't just doing the monster films. She was still very active among universal horror films. So in between these movies that we're talking about, she was, you know, still doing these movies with Lon Chaney Jr. And among others. I mean, it's just we're, we're only focusing on these specific movies. But I wouldn't say that that is necessarily representative of how her career was going at the time. We've got Leon Errol as Herbert Higgins, the cobbler. He was an Australian comedian and actor, most well-known for his Broadway and vaudeville work. He's probably most well-known for playing Nobby Walsh in at least eight Joe Palooka films in the 1940s. For those unaware, Joe Palooka was a popular comic strip boxer for many years, for many decades. Crazy. Yeah, this guy is terrific. You mentioned vaudeville. Like, I mean, he is a one-man show. Yes. He is doing his thing in this movie, whatever it is, but I think it's fantastic. Like, when we get to that scene at the at the inn, you know, it's like full-on, like, physical comedy act. And it's, yes. you know, the, the kind of stuff you and I like to see in these Invisible Man movies a lot. You know, whether it just be a, a, how well a, an actor can hold his own arm behind his back, as if he's being strong-armed, or a performance like this, where he's sort of being bounced around the bar. Yes, I agree wholeheartedly that he's uh, incredible talent, a wonderful comic talent here. But I think if I have a complaint, it's that they give him too much to do. And so the scenes where he appears, like that's where the movie just kind of slows down. And I'm just kind of like, okay, let's let's go, you know, not his fault. I think, he, like I said, it's just maybe not the right movie for it. Yeah, a weird character all around. One standout scene in particular for me. 
Yes, I, I know exactly the scene you're talking about. And last but not least, I felt like this performer deserved a credit because he is kind of the MVP of this movie. Grey Shadow played Brutus, the German Shepherd. Oh, <laughs> yes. His name was Grey Shadow, and in the credits at the end, uh, if you pay attention, it says Grey Shadow as himself. Adorable. Yeah, what a great dog. He's playing Brutus. He appeared with Leon Errol, funny enough, in the 1945 RKO short, It Shouldn't Happen to a Dog. Yeah, like by the end of this movie, I feel like the best character in the whole thing is Brutus. He definitely saves the day, so did not want to let him be ignored here. I just have to do a, a final shout out myself because what I think is my favorite character in the movie doesn't appear until maybe the last like five minutes. But he plays this character named Alf Perry and he just sort of comes into the movie with a bit of information, but he's played by this guy, uh, Skeleton Nags, and boy... I don't think I've seen a more interesting presence in a long time. And the guy is just in and out in this one scene, basically one shot of the movie. But I was like, what is this guy doing for the rest of the film? Because we should just be following whatever this actor is doing. You know, I got to investigate after the show and try and see some more of this guy's performances because super interesting stuff. Just a quick look at his IMDb, because I don't know anything about him, but I know exactly who you're talking about. He's got a very distinct face. He looks like he should be in like a gangster movie, right? I'm looking at his IMDb now, and his like number one credit is Dick Tracy Meets Gruesome from 1947. So go figure, gangster movie. I wouldn't be surprised if he played Gruesome. He sort of has like a Dick Tracy villain kind of look to him. He plays a character named X-Ray, and Gruesome was played by Boris Karloff. Oh, amazing. We might have to watch a Dick Tracy movie, Dan. Now, Boris Karloff got top billing over the actor Ralph Bird, who played Dick Tracy. That's an interesting rabbit hole. One final non-credit. Like I said, there's not a whole lot of information here. One actor who was supposed to be in this movie, but left four days before production started, was Edgar Barrier, who we had recently seen in Phantom of the Opera, the 1943 Phantom of the Opera. He played Raoul. Um, like I said, he was supposed to be in the film. He's probably supposed to play Jasper. But four days before the start of production, he withdrew. And apparently he had grown disenchanted with the roles he had been given at Universal and had requested an amicable discharge. So we almost had Edgar Barrier here, but I'm trying to imagine him in that role. And I can't imagine him, as much as I love him in Phantom of the Opera, I can't imagine him doing a better job than Lester Matthews. Yeah, I'm not, I haven't been comparing ages of these actors either or nothing, but it just seems like that character was more youthful than Sir Jasper here is supposed to be. And Lester Matthews just sort of brings this, you feel like he's tired because he's done lots of stuff and uh -huh. he just wants to rest but then like this thing from his past comes up and is like back in his life he's like ah, i can't deal with this shit there's like an interesting aspect to him being an older gentleman and i buy it with lester matthews so i'm glad that he's here now i've talked a little bit about how it feels like there was material that was cut out of this movie and, and just left me kind of confused. And it turns out that in the original script, uh, I don't know that it was shot, but it was in the original script. It appears that Griffin might've been onto something. Th there was a scene where Griffin is passed out along the riverbank while Sir Jasper and Irene stand over him rather than Griffin being escorted out and then falling into the river on his own. And then in a press book, apparently the, the story began in Africa. Like that story that Griffin talks about, you know, how a tree branch fell on him and he was knocked unconscious and then when he came to they were gone well the press book expanded on that and the herricks left him to die 
and he was rescued by a native, but the accident left him with no memory of what had happened. So, like, there are pieces of this story that were left in the script when they shot the movie. However, I guess they decided they wanted the Herricks to be ambiguous at best, because it feels like they're playing the villains, but the script never tells us one way or the other if they're guilty or not. I think because they don't explicitly tell us that we're meant to believe that they're innocent but the performances tell me something different i don't really know what to believe here as far as i could tell that they were originally supposed to be guilty of leaving him there to die okay because that was one of the more confusing aspects of the plot to me as well it just felt like this extra detail you know it reminded me of when the guy was chasing son of dracula in the last movie and he mentioned a tree fell on his car so he didn't see where they ended up going to get married and i was like oh another convenient tree fell on this guy and gave him amnesia for a bunch of years until he got (laughs) like hit on the head again at the docks and like remembered everything yeah i would have liked to have seen that i would maybe i think it's interesting the way it lays because i feel like irene plays it like yeah we left you for dead but jasper plays it like we would never have done that like Uh honestly been like no never crossed my mind like it seems like this husband and wife aren't even on the same page the way the movie is playing to me uh as it is now so interesting results in omitting certain things but leaving a trace of it Yeah, and she gets that one line, like when he returns to their home and reveals that he's still alive and all of that. She has that one line where she says, you'll get everything that's coming to you. Yes, yes. And the way she says it, I'm like, oh, shit. Not to jump ahead, that's when I knew she poisoned the coffee or whatever it was, the scotch. Like, that's when I knew, like, I was like, you don't say something like that. Unless, like, you're going to do something. (laughs) If that's what she did. I can't tell if she drugged the the scotch or if he just had, like, an episode and passed out. Right. Yeah, I can't either. And I plays, to me, again, like, Irene drugged him and Jasper's like, he's just drunk, you know? Uh (laughs) It's kind of fun like that. Yeah, I mean, this movie leaves a lot up in the air, a lot for you to interpret. So I guess you could screen this movie for 10 people. They might all feel differently about what what happens here. Okay, I mean, that's it. That's all I have in terms of the production aspect of it. Before we dive in head first, can I just ask you about one other component about the script that you might have a note about where this came from? Because I know it's going to be a big part of the show. Well, I have a feeling it might be a bigger part of the show later. But did you find anything about them referencing Dracula in this movie and calling out vampirism and turning the Invisible Man into sort of this like scientific vampire in a way? I didn't see anything to do with that in any research I did, but I when I heard that line, I wrote it down because it struck me as funny. You know, we talk about all the time, even, you know, back from when The Mummy began, is how that was almost like a remake or it became a template in a lot of ways for how they were going to approach a lot of their monsters going down the line. And, you know, they'll mix and match some of the relics and details and animals and transformations or whatever. But like at its core, a lot of these movies are similar you know for better or worse whatever i love it but it was just fun this time to be like yeah we're doing that again but we're totally calling it out 
see, I interpreted that moment as Universal kind of trying to distance themselves from the old era of horror, like the 30s, you know, because horror was changing in the 40s with Val Luton and, and, and the stuff he was doing with like unseen horror. Universal was struggling to remain relevant with these characters. And it's clear that they were just not performing as well as other horror films of the of the era. And so maybe this was like some attempt on their part to say like, no, this is a new thing, you know, like we're not going back to the old Dracula stuff anymore. But we're still going to have vampire type stuff. Like we're still going to suck your blood, but we're not we're not calling it vampire. We're calling it science. Maybe. Yeah, I could. I, I didn't see anything to do with that line anywhere, but I did enjoy that line when I saw it so much that I, I wrote it down. But yeah, so that's all I've got for that. Okay, so let's jump into the movie here. Of course, I'm still waiting for this Universal logo to change. We <laughs> <laughs> I know, Dan. We may as well not even mention it till it does, right? Like, <laughs> It's funny because I've been re-watching all the Marvel movies in order, and I'm like, when are they going to get to the modern Marvel fanfare that I'm familiar with? Like, What are right. all these iterations that I've don't remember yeah so i mean it's gonna be a big day when when this thing changes it might be its own episode let's be honest <laughs> <laughs> uh we get our opening credit sequences nothing nothing super fancy here really bummed out because even son of dracula had that fun opening with uh with like the cobwebs right like the hand was like tearing away at something this is just nothing yeah i mean at least they've got some some movement uh unlike the what's it, the invisible agent credits which is just a still silhouette of uh, England. But the movie, once it starts, I gotta say, this opening sequence, just on its own, is really exciting. I mean, it starts on like a foggy, like, dock. I guess it's in London, because that's the package that we see. It's marked London. And, like, it looks like an old Universal monster movie, right? Like, this is maybe the best looking sequence in the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. It almost reminded me of King Kong, to be honest, yeah. because there's like a lot of dock work in that film, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Although it's not a, it's not a dock, it's a it's a train station. Oh, okay. It feels very much like King Kong, like you said. I thought it was a dock because it's super smoky and like this giant crate is being lifted off of something you can't quite see. I just assumed it was a big ship, like a, a big vessel, you know, but no, I guess not. Um. <laughs> it's not super clear. So, I mean, our main character, Rob Griffin, cuts himself out of this like bundle and then sneaks off into the night. The next time we see him, he is at like a, it's like a haberdasher. Yeah, yeah. He's trying to get like new clothes and stuff. Yeah, so he's he's getting a new set of clothes, kind of disguise, if you will. So the proprietor asks him if he arrived on the Ella Campbell. Now, I don't imagine a train would have a name like that, so maybe it is a ship. It's just not very clear in that opening sequence. Yeah, that opening sequence is crazy because, like, the crate lands and then he, like, cuts himself out of it. I was like, stowaway. So this whole, like, first couple minutes, I, I absolutely love it. He's getting new clothes, and the storekeeper asks him if he arrived on the Ella Campbell. And that is, like, the first glimpse of Rob's madness that we see. Uh, he immediately goes from even-tempered to sort of, like, very aggressive, about to threaten this man for even asking, you know, what are you, a spy? You know, that kind of um, accusatory tone. Yeah, he's super paranoid. Yeah, yeah. I was surprised that he lost it. I thought maybe he might be, like, the hero and that he was sneaking back into the country because he mentions things about being spied on and he's gonna do this once or twice too in the movie where he like apologizes in that way where he's like sorry i kind of flew off the handles there my friend but right. uh, you know i don't i don't quite know who i've been recently and the, the old store manager's like oh that's okay as if like i get threatened all the time <laughs> like no worries 
Yeah, like it's just as quickly as it escalates, it comes back down. Everybody's cool. Yeah, so you mentioned Rob sort of gives us a little bit of what his story is. Uh, he's been away. Does he mention that like he lost his memory? I don't think we got that far. Yet. He just kind of says he's been lost and he, you know, he's not sure like, yeah. of uh, what's been going on. But he leaves behind that newspaper clipping when after he gets new clothes, he leaves behind his old clothes and in the old clothes is a newspaper clipping. And it's like, maniac escapes and, and murders like two or three people and there's a big old picture of this guy's face yeah this is like the quickest way to establish this character i think i've ever seen the headline reads homicidal maniac escapes from cape town asylum murders two interns and nurse in psychopathic ward robert griffin a dock worker committed to the cape town institute for the insane this morning attacked and killed two interns and a nurse then escaped down an elevator shaft police have thrown out a dragnet in an effort to capture this dangerous homicidal maniac and predict an early apprehension. I like how they mentioned Dragnet, and I like how he jumped down an elevator shaft. Okay, like, all right, John McClane. I almost feel like the most exciting sequence in this whole story happens in a newspaper clipping. You're, you're so right. It's like the story of his escape from the hospital and also the story of him getting left behind in the jungle. Yeah, which we're going to get in the next scene. But yeah, like all the, the most exciting stuff that has happened, we hear about through like either like in the newspaper or we hear about it secondhand. So I kind of wish they had included these scenes in the movie. But so as he makes his exit, we cut to the Herrick household where we are introduced to Sir Jasper and his wife, Irene, their daughter, Julie. And we meet Mark, who is Julie's boyfriend, who is a journalist. Yes. Mark Foster. So we learn that Mark is a journalist. He's dating Julie. And just kind of as quickly as we are introduced to them, they kind of leave, right? We don't really get to spend a whole lot of time with them. Yeah, yeah. This was nuts, Dan, because I sort of prepared myself from last time when the pediatrician became the main character and I like kind of lost my mind a little bit. They didn't fool me this time. I knew when Julie and Mark showed up and left, they weren't going to be back for a long time. This movie is not about the young couple. This movie is about the parents. This is going to be about Irene and Jasper. So I was like, all right, focus on Irene and Jasper. Just sink in now and accept it and you'll be much better off. And, and I was right because, you know, Mark doesn't show up for almost an hour again and Julie hardly shows up ever again. So I'm glad I did that. And, and even Irene disappears for most of it. But, you know, it's mostly about them. So I was glad that I made the right call this time. So we learn a little bit about Irene and Jasper here before Rob shows up. Like They talk about Mark and whether or not he is like a suitable suitor for their daughter. And he's got the right blood, but no money, like something like that. But the Herricks have enough money that their grandchildren will never have to worry. You know, like that sort of upper class nonsense. So then Rob shows up. He makes his grand entrance. Uh, he is introduced by the butler, Cleghorn. It's wild. The butler is like, yeah, Robert Griffin is here to see you. And they kind of like lose their mind. They're like, what? It can't be. And I'm like, why not? How do you know this lunatic? <laughs> yeah, it's almost like they've seen a ghost when they eventually see him. And that's why it's I find it so difficult to gauge their guilt, you know? Yeah, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, it's hard to be like, oh, in this moment, they're not playing it like they ever expected this day to come. It's more like later, once this day has come, 
they're sort of like trying to figure out how to get around it. Right. But yeah, it's because the, the script's not clear. So now they have to, to catch up on, on the whole story, what happened. So this is our opportunity to learn what supposedly happened with Rob and them when they were in Africa. They were in Cape Town, South Africa, searching for a diamond mine. And yeah. Rob found the mine. But as he found it, a branch from a tree fell knocked him out and when he woke up he couldn't remember anything that had happened of course the herricks discovered the, the diamond mine and took their fortune and have been living off of it ever since but here's the thing when they were down there on safari they had a written agreement that whatever they found they would split evenly so essentially they took rob's share thinking that he was dead and now he's back and he's come to collect his share of the fortune but the thing is they have made a series of bad investments and they don't have as much as they had five years prior so now they're in this situation where you know they, they offer him half of what they have and that's not enough rob wants the entire fortune that should have been his and is willing to do whatever it takes to get it. He's even threatening to take their home, their estate. Yeah, he's holding that agreement over their head for everything. And he is ruthless. Again, there's another moment here, even when I think Irene is like, you know, we didn't leave you alone. We left you with one of our guides, right? Didn't right. they mention they left him with a guide? So like, maybe they're lying, but when he woke up, there wasn't anyone around. So he can't tell you if that was true or not. I wonder if that might be a bit of unreliable narration or not it just further you know makes me wonder you know if they were in on it or not i'm i'm leaning i'm going to lean toward yes for my own amusement <laughs> he was presumably sane when they were there in the first place and at some point after the accident and regaining his memory he became insane it's even unclear exactly how did he get his memory back before or after he escaped the mental hospital i think the way i understand it is he escaped from the mental hospital got on board a ship and then was hit on the head a second time and that's when he remembered everything that had happened he remembered being with the herricks on this trip he remembers the accident with the tree branch i think he's doing a lot of assuming as to what happened next the herricks say that they had left him with somebody assumed that he was dead and we can take them at their word that that was true or we can assume that they left him there and just abandoned him and took the money for themselves it's, it, it can be read either way i think yeah yeah and one way or the other he'll be getting what's coming to him i kind of prefer this movie i think with everybody kind of being a villain yeah i think i like to believe that the herricks are not operating in good faith here that they did leave him there to die like i think that's why they're so they're so cagey in this scene yeah well we're gonna get to it soon but even jasper tries to like pull some fast shit on him and later with the mm -hmm. lawyer and and all that so like even he has like some tricks up his sleeve too like he's not as innocent as he seems right well they, they also recognize that rob is insane and that i think that to give Give in to this demand would be sort of unwise to lose like almost their entire family fortune to uh, a crazy person, a man who's mentally unstable. So I, I can understand their motivation there, trying to hang on to their money. It's a very complicated situation. Now, what does make things a little more complicated for them is that Rob still has that agreement that they signed to split whatever they found. So after they share a drink and Rob has kind of a spell, like it could have been drugged. Uh, maybe he just had like like a manic episode and passed out. It's unclear. Jasper finds that agreement, that piece of paper, and takes it so that uh, that Rob cannot make his legitimate claim to their fortune. Yeah, he wants to burn it, which 
I thought was a good idea, but then they said they're going to keep it. And then was there an idea to give it back to him at some point? I start getting lost a little bit in a bit of the details going forward in this. Yeah, so there is a plan to potentially give him his money. Irene decides to hang on to that letter and wait until Rob is rational again, assuming that this is just a temporary thing. Again, the way she's playing the scene out, it could be read different ways, but I think that she assumes that he will eventually become his old self, and then when he does, they will work with him to get him his share of the, of the fortune. But it also kind of seems like, you know, she doesn't actually believe that. And she's it kind of seems like she's scheming on the side. But again, this call comes down to the inconsistencies between the, the performance and, and the script that we have. So yeah, I think we can take it that she does have plans to, to give him his money eventually. But for now, they can't afford to be dragged down into this scandal. So what happens is, as he regains his consciousness, Sir Jasper kind of ushers him out the door and gives him a very unceremonious exit. I wasn't sure if Rob was conscious in this sequence or if they were just doing sort of like a weekend at Bernie's routine so that the butler could see as a witness uh, that he had left the house or something. That's also possible because it gets referenced later. Rob is going to just wake up in the middle of the street, you know, on the sidewalk, basically, you right. know, and like he's going to like fall over the bridge into the river. No idea where he is. Yeah, it just didn't seem like he walked out of that house on his own. Right. And so all by himself and not totally coherent, Rob falls into a river where he is uh, eventually rescued by... Herbert Higgins, who is sort of a colorful local character, a shoemaker. Yeah, likes to say, blimey. Yeah, he is like the most stereotypical, like British blue collar character I've ever seen. He pulls Rob out of the water and takes him home, learns about his story, and then decides, like, the, the movie doesn't really fully expand on any of this, but I think we can assume that he's a, he's a poor man who might have a chance at some of this money and decides he's going to do whatever he can to help Rob get his fortune back. I feel like he sees his meal ticket in a way where he like rescued this guy, looks pretty well off, has this crazy story, and is like, yeah, I'll, I'll get some money out of this, possibly. I'll stick around and see where this goes. He helps Rob hire uh, a lawyer who, you know, they all agree they're going to try and essentially blackmail Sir Jasper. Um, although I don't think the lawyer really understands <laughs> that's what they're doing. And Rob realizes that like he doesn't have his agreement anymore, that they took the agreement from him, so they don't really have that leverage. Right. And we learn all of that in the very next scene as Herbert tries to make his case. And then the lawyer finds out that the butler was a witness to what had happened, which was that Rob left on his own two feet and was not, in fact, thrown into a river by anybody. And once the lawyer hears that, he decides he's not going to have any part of this, washes his hands of it, and takes off. Not only that, but but Sir Frederick Travers, the, the chief constable, shows up too and is like, you know, what's all this? Like, what's going on? You know, Jasper, like, explains everything. And Herbert and his lawyer, Jim Feeney, like, they just cave immediately. They yeah. just, like, cough and, like, bow out of the room. <laughs> so at yeah. first it's like, we want a million pounds. And then he's like, can I get 50 LBs? 
Once Herbert realizes that he could be uh, in trouble for blackmail, he suddenly has never met Rob before in his life, and he's going to throw him out as soon as he gets home. I love how quickly all of that turns around. That was pretty funny. Yeah, and they're like, we're just going to make sure by sticking the police on him as well. Like, we're just going to run him, make sure we run him out of town. We're going to come around, so he better not be there. Right. So the next time we see Rob, he is trekking through the rain all by himself, just looking for the next town. And this is where he meets Dr. Drury. Love it. This is so cool. Like, this is so classic horror to me where a guy is just kind of like stumbling through the rain and, he, and he's looking for like maybe a, a good Samaritan and not, and he just knocks on the wrong door. Or, well, maybe for him the right door, but you know, this would be the deal, right? Like, you knock on the door and it turns out to be like a witch or, or a monster or something instead of like a helping hand. <laughs> Right. And what's so funny to me in this scene is that, uh, you know, of course, it's John Carradine who answers the door and he learns that this stranger is a man on the run. He's being hunted by the police. Uh, he has no friends and is the perfect person to invite into his home to show off his new uh, scientific experiments. Well, no one's going to miss this guy. Right. Is the only reason he gets in the house, because I love the way that Dr. Drury, the way he's framed in shadow at first, like he mm-hmm. opens the door and you just sort of see like this amazing silhouette and then you know he leans in closer after he gets more information and he's like become more welcoming and gentle he's like well come on in he's like i'm not gonna i'm not gonna stab you with anything or use your body parts for nothing yeah i don't take him as being that manipulative although it's clear that he he feels like this might be the guy right but he does in good faith i feel walk him through the house show off these experiments he sees the dog is invisible there's a parrot that's invisible oh so good dan more the invisible animals Yes. Love it. Such great gags everywhere. We get the Six Flags walking invisible dog leash. Yep. <laughs> what a treat. <laughs> yeah, these these effects are simple, but far more effective than like the guinea pig effects from uh, Invisible Man Returns. And I think we saw those again in Invisible Woman. I don't remember at this point, but we do see like that repurposed footage of the guinea pigs. I prefer how they treat the dog and the bird. And there's a, there's one other animal uh, that he's got in his home as well. I really get the sense here that Dr. Drury is operating in good faith. Just kind of like really excited to have succeeded in making a couple of animals invisible. Yeah, I think that's it. I think it's just like his look is very what you would think of when you think of mad scientist, you know. But like he turns out to be sort of a nice scientist, kind of, kind of more Doc Brown parallels okay like don't necessarily judge him by his cover get to know him that's why doc brown i guess is trusted with teenage kids all the time Um, (laughs) because he's actually kind of a great responsible guy well not that responsible but anyhow i loved a lot of the dialogue in this too where he's talking about like what do you know about optical density and molecular physics and i've got this formula i want to test it on tissue very cool I made a note as I was watching this that a lot of these movies are sort of horror by way of science, right? And so a lot of the science has to kind of be explained so the audience can understand what's happening. And, and most of the time, I feel like they're making some real reaches or they're speaking so technically that I have no choice but to believe them. But I felt like the way that Dr. Drury takes Rob through the process, of the, or at least understanding the concept of invisibility, it was the best, simplest explanation to at least get my mind to understand what's going on. You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't think it's ever been more clear 
clear. It's great. I really, I really love the way he explains it. This is the moment where you could see sort of the gears turning in Rob's head. Like John Hall is doing a great job in this sequence because it's like dawning on him as it's being explained to him that he could use this. He wants to be a test subject by the time he's done learning about it. You know, he's like, inject me. I'll be your experiment and everything. And the doctor's sort of like overjoyed about it. But then he does mention the one thing where where he's talking about Brutus. And he's like, you know, Brutus used to get picked on by a bunch of other dogs. So when I turned him invisible, he could get his revenge. Yes. And he's like, you could get your revenge. And he's like, yeah, there's always seems to be a pair or something like that. Like he's got the same problems as like... Dr. Drury didn't need to go that extra mile. He already had this guy on the slab. Like, you didn't have to be, oh, and by the way, it'll be perfect to get your revenge on the ones that have wronged you. Yeah, totally. They put a very fine point on it by the time he agrees. It's kind of like Inception. I don't know if Drury is intentionally trying to make Rob feel like it was his idea. I don't know, but it's certainly, uh, he accomplishes that goal because by the end of that conversation, Rob's like, yeah, let me do it. I got to do it. This is the perfect way for me to win back my fortune. Yeah, and the doc- Doctor even says, like, before the experiment, he's like, now, remember, like, I told you all the risks, okay? And he's like, keep going, you know, I still want it. So Rob becomes invisible. And to this point, we don't know that there's a way back, but we will come to learn that there is a way back. And I love uh, Dr. Drury's sort of like celebration speech where he's like, now I'm one of the immortals. I'm up there with the greats, you know, they will say my name with like... Copernicus and like yeah, Einstein yeah. and all, everybody who changed history. He's like, now I'm one of those names. And he was so happy. Yeah. And I think that's the closest he really gets to being a mad scientist. Up to this point, he's pretty level-headed. Yeah. Because he's like, uh, get your rest. We've got lots of interviews. There's going to be a press tour. Like I'm going <laughs> to get an award. Like you're going to have to answer all these questions. And Rob's like, kill that noise. Like I'm out of here, doc. Like I'm invisible. I'm getting lost. <laughs> So yeah, as Dr. Drury is getting his notes together and preparing for, like you said, the press tour and all of the the, the new fame that is coming his way, Rob decides, all right, well, this is the perfect time to get out of here. So he makes his escape after a scuffle with Dr. Drury and heads back to the Herrick house. Now invisible, Rob heads back to visit his old friend, Sir Jasper, and has a little bit of fun with him, right? Like this is um, typical of an Invisible Man movie. Reminds me of the original Invisible Man when he visited Kemp for the first time. Yeah, this is cool. He threatens him with a chair. There's a really interesting shot in this sequence where Jasper's like looking into the mirror and it's a reflection, you know, and I was like, where's the camera? It seems like one of those trick shots where it's like you should see the reflection of the camera the way that this is framed because after it's like framed on the reflection, the camera turns. Mm Mm-hmm and focuses on another part of the room. I was like, wow, that that was a really weird trick shot. The camera's just a little left of center of the mirror. So they get away with it. I don't I don't, but I don't think it was directly in the shot. Still still really cool, very effective. Yes. I really like the way the camera moves in this sequence. And I really like the invisible man effects. A lot of them are standard, like, you know, him lifting the chair and, and, and whatnot. But I thought that when he starts wielding that knife, oh yeah, it looks better than a lot of the other previous effects have looked in the past. I wouldn't doubt that they actually had like a man in a black velvet suit holding the knife. The way it moves, it jerks around. I believe that it's in a person's hand. Yeah, yeah. And the way he flips it in the air several times, yep. that's not on string. 
things. There's no, no. way you could get like the physics of that proper like it it looks like you're right i feel like there's definitely they just blacked out the whole guy yeah and uh just to get the flipping and the and the moving around the room but man like what a threatening representation for the invisible man like just as a symbol just a knife floating in the air like that is awesome no pun intended but like it's so direct and to the point (laughs) right of the horror of it And I don't see an outline. I don't see anything in this scene. So maybe by far the best effects shot so far. Oh, and we also get confirmation that he he is the insane escaped lunatic guy in case you just like were like me and wasn't exactly sure if that was true or not. But he says, like, I've already killed three people with this knife. Yep. I guess that's the people mentioned in the newspaper, unless he killed three other people off screen that we aren't aware of. Yeah, no, I don't think he's killed anybody since his escape. All right. Definitely the guy from the newspaper. Yep. And this is also the scene where he forces Jasper to write his confession. Right. There's kind of a couple long scenes again in this mm-hmm. movie, like there was in the last movie, that just seem to be going on and on with more and more information and like twists and stuff, like enough to make up two scenes. Yeah, they're double duty here in that we get a lot of like information spoken dialogue that advances the story, gives backstory, so on and so forth. But then we're also mixing in effect shots. So yeah, these scenes are long, but they are accomplishing quite a bit. So as Irene walks in and as she discovers the confession, she's about to tear it up, not realizing that Griffin is invisible and in the room. And as soon as she hears that he's invisible, she kind of gives her uh, her husband, like, what for? Like, get yourself together. Stop being ridiculous. At that, at that point, we get one of the better effect shots in the whole movie when Rob reaches into the fish tank and then douses his face in water. And I love, at least on a conceptual level, I think that that was such a great moment. Yeah, I love that idea too. It works a little better partially later on with the flower. Oh, I like when they do it again with the flower. But I also love the way the invisible voice moves through the room and sounds in this whole scene and he's making him write this whole confession and then yeah Irene entering and being like what's all this nonsense uh, but I think this might be why she's not in the rest of the movie this might scare her into a coma or something because I think this is the last time we see her I think you're right I, it'll, it'll come back to me as we work our way through I'm sure with the confession written and in his pocket Griffin heads back to his, his friend Herbert and reveals himself as invisible yeah he's looking like the original invisible man for the most part now he's except he's got like the 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 suit on but he's got the mummy wraps and he's got the big goggles yep but this is the only time i think in the entire movie we see him look like this but it's cool it's a nice throwback yeah and herbert's starting to regret making friends with a stranger that he pulled out of a river one night (laughs) he sure is this is the scene where rob sort of demands that he make breakfast and the whole scene he's just trying not to make breakfast yeah he's like are you sure you wouldn't rather go down to the inn um and he's like could you put this bag over your head you're quite unsettling and so that's when he like puts the flower on his face you know he does that gag i didn't realize it was the very next scene but the problem with the effect is at the end of the scene there's like a close-up of invisible man with flower on his face Mm -hmm. and you could see his eyeballs so it's like wrong because it's like he got flower on his eyeballs and like (laughs) that would sting like crazy uh so the effect shot like concept cool execution they kind of blew it yeah and with both this and the water i think 
you see the eyes in the shot. So I don't know that there was a way around that. They weren't able to completely black out his eyes. He still had to be able to see. But it is especially egregious in this scene. I thought the same thing. This is the scene where Rob sort of convinces Herbert to help him with the promise of money. To put this in a Dracula, like I made this note in my notes, like to compare this movie again to, to Dracula, Herbert is now kind of the Renfield or trying to think of another analogy. You know, I think of like vampire movies where like the vampire has uh, a human assistant, right? His familiar. Yeah. Right. His Guillermo. <laughs> right. And so, yeah. So now I think that Herbert has found himself uh, in the employ of this invisible lunatic, for better or worse. I love that. Yeah, man. Even more parallels to vampires. Uh, sure. It's the last place I ever thought that they would try and, and work this stuff in is with the Invisible Man. I, I really thought this series at least was often in sort of its own direction most of the time. But it's cool. I'm, I'm still digging it. Yeah. So in the, in the next scene with Herbert now kind of begrudgingly working for our Invisible Man, the two head to a local tavern. Not just any local tavern, but the Running Nag, which feels like it should be in the world's end the golden mile yes it's it's almost like every other inn or tavern that we have seen in any of these movies so far at least the ones that are set in england full of uh, colorful characters now the scene itself is important for two reasons first and foremost rob learns who mark is now rob has been established up to this point that he is interested not just in the herrick family fortune which he believes is his but he also wants Julie. That's right. He wants Julie, but Julie doesn't know who he is. Correct. Which is wild. She knows of him, but has I don't think they've ever met. Right. So in this scene, Rob figures out who Mark is, has a little bit of fun with him, spilling his drink. And then Rob and Herbert essentially run a con with the, I guess, the local dart league. There's a bunch of guys there around the dartboard, and there's an entertaining scene where Rob sort of ropes Herbert into a dart competition. I feel like Rob is using his Invisible Man powers to, like, play pranks and stuff, but it also seems like he's trying to get Herbert to kind of, like, stand up for himself a little bit more. Also, sure. I get that weird feeling going on in this sequence. I just, I don't understand the purpose for this scene overall. I can't imagine why Rob would divert from his plan to fuck with some dart players. I had a couple ideas about that. First of all, like all of the physical comedy is right here yep. with Leon Errol. Like from the minute he walks in that door, Invisible Man is pushing him around and he's flying around all over and bumping into people and trying to pick up stuff and knocking over things. And it's terrific terrific stuff but as far as this like dart competition this game of darts i think this is just purely like for the sake of trying to get some jokes in some comedy in here because it's for the most part been not funny i don't know how else to say it like i don't think this is the right way to do it because it's off balance i like it more when it's laced throughout a bit better but here it's kind of like let's just get all this funny stuff like out of the way in this one scene it's fine i wouldn't believe it if i was in the bar what was happening <laughs> like, it's not natural at all but it's a it, it's a cute little way i guess you know it's a it's a fun little prank to play with the invisible man and, and his little sidekick 
I imagine they wanted to include some more effects shots. They wanted to fully utilize the fact that they have an invisible man in their movie, as well as give Leon Errol a chance to be funny, because that was what people knew him for. Like, I'm looking at this, you know, outside of the fact that's the only explanation I can come up with is that they just wanted effects and they wanted some Leon Errol comedy in here. I think it's all fine by itself. I just think that sticking it into this section of the movie slows down the movie, because now, like, we're spending five, ten minutes yes. watching ridiculous dart tricks, which are as simple as him holding the dart and and Rob, like, running with the dart and sticking it in the board. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, I mean, I know it's not easy to come up with these kinds of gags, but I wish instead of just this one long skit with this one concept, we had, like, a couple throughout the whole movie you know like even if we did the dart thing again later but outside of the bar but it never comes back and it never works into anything ever again you know what just occurred to me as i was thinking about it one reason for this scene that i can think of is rob has promised herbert money and wealth in exchange for his help and i feel like this scene may have been an attempt to prove that he can get Herbert Rich. Even if it's only like a couple pounds, it's like, okay, see, we, we just made a couple pounds together tonight. Stick with me right. and you'll be rich. Like that is maybe the only justification for that scene that I can think of, but I, it still doesn't really explain why it's as long. One other thing that happens in that scene is uh, Mark gets a little note from Julie that says not to come by because her parents are like extremely distraught at the moment. So Sure enough, he just takes off and goes over and to see how Julie and her parents are doing. So you're right. Now we go back to the Herrick household. Julie is exhausted. And I love that they're giving her uh, her, her brandy because <laughs> she's all worn out. And she's very concerned about her parents. There's stories about her mother's been like telling, quote, lies and babbling about this invisible man. So she believes her mother is ill. And then as Mark is listening to this story, he starts to put some of the pieces together because he's been chasing down this story of an invisible man. When Julie mentions the name Griffin, that's what gets the wheels turning in Mark's head. Yeah, yeah. And then the butler sort of um, grows a conscience, I guess. Yes. And like goes over to Mark and he's like, hey, like there was a guy named Griffin here the other day. And as soon as he says that, like something falls off of the second floor and almost like brains them on the head and yes. they move out of the way just in the nick of time. So like the invisible man is definitely in the house, like listening and hiding, which was awesome. Yes. Yo, I love that. I love Cleghorn's reaction to that when uh, Mark's like, are you okay? He says, quite. But it's closer than I like him. Love that line of dialogue. I don't know why. It just struck me funny. So that loud noise gets Sir Jasper out of his library, at which point Rob does the arm behind the back thing, which I think great performance. Yeah there from Lester Matthews. And this is kind of where Rob completes his list of demands. Not only does he want his fortune and the estate, but he wants Julie also. And Jasper kind of agrees that if he were to be visible again, that he could marry her. Like she'll never marry you if you're invisible. Yeah, okay, so this is where the movie kind of loses me again. Yeah. I'm so confused. All right, what I gathered from this scene is maybe Griffin is just crazy, but yep. he's like, let me get this straight, Jasper. If I were to become visible again, you'd be okay with me, say, 
taking your daughter, taking your house, and taking all your... You'll just sign all that over? And he's like, yeah, yes, yes, I would be. And so he's like, all right, I'll be right back. I'm going to go try and find out how to be visible again. And so in the back of my head, I'm wondering, like, is that the truth? Or, or is Jasper clever and just trying to get this guy to show himself again? I don't know yet, but later, I don't think that's the case when he shows back up. No, I felt like... Jasper didn't believe there was a way for him to reverse his invisibility. Like, this is the last I'm ever going to see of the guy. Right. He's never going to be visible again. Like, I just got rid of him forever. Right. But he's actually going to show back up. Yeah, I think his promises here are strictly to get him out of the house. But little does he know that Rob is able to make good on that promise. And But at the time, Rob doesn't even know that there's a way back. Right. No, he's told that there is no way back. He's like, how do I turn back? And Dr. Drury's like, you die. And he's like, sounds good to me. So he heads back to Dr. Drury's house in time to watch him bring Brutus back to visibility. This is when I was like, okay, he is a good doctor because he just brought his boy back. You know, now we could all see what a good boy he is. But the thing that the movie doesn't really uh, spend a whole lot of time on is that there's another dog on the other table and that a blood transfusion like a complete blood transfusion will return an invisible person or creature back to being visible right but it has to be a complete blood transfusion that's an idea that they sort of establish in the invisible man returns at the end of that movie vincent price has a blood transfusion and he's brought back to visibility but here a full blood transfusion will bring you back to visibility however it will kill the original source of the blood yeah, yeah. I like that extra addition. Like, I like that they added something to that. Don't get me wrong. I don't like that a dog was sacrificed. But, right. you know, this doctor, he's been working on animals too much to begin with. You know, like, he's already off that deep end. He's a mad scientist. He's not ethical. I like him as a character, not as, like, a person. You right. know what I mean? Like, right. He's still, like, experimenting on his dog, even though he brought him back. But he did bring him back, and that dog is going to be... One of the most loyal dogs I've ever seen in film history. It's probably one of the greatest dogs committed to the silver screen ever. But uh, this is all a very cool setup. I love seeing him working. I love seeing, you know, the experiment. I love seeing the dog fade back into existence. Like, this is all nice stuff. Right. Yeah. I mean, the science of it here doesn't really make any sense. Blood types don't seem to matter. No, there's only one reason it takes blood to make him visible again it's because it's uh, it's vampire right well that and even though like again it doesn't make sense but i like that it's a decision that sort of forces rob to become truly villainous yes yeah monstrous and they even say it might not last so you're gonna have to do it again and again right it's a temporary fix it's not a permanent fix i love all that setup if they're gonna do it i feel like they integrated it very well into the powers and abilities of the invisible man you know like yeah you get temporary cure like i think that's cool now you're addicted to the cure or something or you know i mean he's he's already nuts so what's to stop him from just amassing hundreds of victims you know just to switch back and forth he's killing already anyway why not you know kill to feed he's gonna feel like that's more justifiable mm-hmm yeah And so his first thought is, okay, well, we're going to call Mark up and have him come over here. And, uh... Yeah, I know just the guy. Yeah. 
I mean, it accomplishes multiple things, right? It, Julie will be a single woman. The reporter who has been investigating Invisible Man will be out of the picture and it returns Rob to visibility. So, you know, it's it's sort of, there are multiple reasons for why Mark is the, the perfect victim here. He forces Dr. Drury to call Mark and invite him over, but secretly Dr. Drury calls the police and informs them that there's an, an invisible man in his house. And I love that the cop who answers the phone is none other than Billy Bevan, who we've seen in multiple movies at this point. He looks very familiar. Dracula's daughter? Yep, he's in The Invisible Man Returns. He has stood out to us in previous movies. So just just a character actor that I really love seeing pop up. And these cops are just the most dense. Like, not even paying attention. Like, he can't understand that this is, like, a secret call for help or whatever. I feel like the doctor is, like, doing that thing where he's like you know help me help me Uh (laughs) like pick up on this come on you're the cops like whatever but what do they do they like call back and ask if it was a crank call yeah the 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 cops at the police station are playing cards and he thinks it's a prank call when the doctor calls the cops they like straight up just don't believe him so they don't really explain it the police do call back billy bevan calls back and says we just received a call from you and at this point it's rob who has picked up the phone now he's pretending to be dr drury and he knows the phone call that had just been made so yeah it's a little sloppy the police don't even get so far as to ask if it was a prank call or anything they just kind of call back even though it was clear they didn't they weren't taking that first call seriously so it's a little bit confusing but now rob Rob knows that he's been double-crossed by Dr. Drury and changes his mind and decides Drury is going to be the first victim to restore him back to full visibility. Yeah, and I was like, well, who's going to perform the experiment if you're going to be draining the blood out of the doctor and and Rob's going to do the experiment? He knows how to do it. Turns out you only need one hand, one free hand. I know, he's going to do it multiple times. He really gets the hang of this. As the blood transfusion is underway, Mark, of all people, shows up at the police station. This scene's hilarious. He just he just waltzes into the police station and he's like, I'm a reporter. Got any leads? Hear anything about the invisible man lately? And they're like, actually, Dr. Drury just made a prank call about the invisible man. And he's like, quick, we got to get over there immediately. Something's got to be going on. Too many people are mentioning the invisible man for him not to be true. Right. So they suddenly hop to and, and immediately rush over to Dr. Drury's house to see what the deal is. Yeah, and Rob is visible again. Like, it worked. It's working. By the time they get there, Rob has been restored to full visibility and proceeds to burn down the entire house, taking only the blood transfusion, like, equipment. It's really just, like, a couple hoses and a syringe, right? Like, it's it's not complicated. But this scene is insane. We get one of our return stars to the Universal Monster Pictures, one of the biggest stars of the Universal Monster Pictures returns, and that is the element of fire. Yes. Fire is back, baby. <laughs> This is not the flame house from what I can tell, but yeah, he sprays all the chemicals and the poor dog is still chained up. I was so mad at the invisible man. I wanted to strangle him myself. Yeah, in a a true act of villainy. I mean, we remember at school, we talked about screenwriting and the concept of saving the cat, right? Like, do you remember that? Yeah, but there's also the concept of kick the dog. Right. Like, I think that's from Rules of the Game. 
right, or something like in early in that movie, someone kicks a dog, and you know he's the villain. Right to to establish a hero, you, you have them save a cat. But to, if you want to establish a villain really quickly, they can kick a dog, or in this case, leave a chained up dog to die in a burning house. I mean, this dog manages to escape. He saves himself. He does. That was amazing. But also, I know Mark ran in there. And he didn't know the doctor was dead. He saved the doctor first, but right. he could have probably saved the dog and the doctor at the same time. But at least the dog saved himself. Yes. The next scene, Rob returns to Jasper's home using the name Martin Field. I was going to say, does Rob return? He is now Martin Field. Right. So he's using the name Martin Field, which really only fools Julie. I'm so confused. Like, it fools me because I'm like, what? Why Why bother with this if the only person you're fooling is someone that has never seen this person before? Yeah, I mean, like, Cleghorn hears the name Martin Field. Even he's scratching his head. Like, hang on a second. And they're like, play along, Cleghorn. And right. it's like, if I look, if I was Invisible Man, I'd be like, Cleghorn's got to go. Right. Like, <laughs> man knows too much. And so this whole next scene... Rob, he's there to make good on the promise that they made. He is visible now, so he wants his money, he wants the home, and he wants Julie. Yeah, Jasper's got to be just as confused as I am, because it's like, first he's back, now it's like, pretend I'm some other dude, and it's also like, well, you promised. I did what I was going to say I did. I became visible again, and like, no one recognized me, so I made it here, and now you got to give me the keys. Yep, and meanwhile, Brutus is outside howling that's the best brutus is after this guy he's yep. he's got his scent and rob's like they're like what's that he's like that's the only thing in the world that i'm ever gonna be afraid of the very next scene he's about to uh take care of that problem very quickly so he's now martin field full-time and he is living in this estate he effectively has accomplished the goal he set out to accomplish he calls herbert to his home and pays him to get rid of brutus yeah, a thousand pounds to kill a dog. Well, it was also interesting because Herbert shows up and he's like, I stuck by you when you were poor. I figured I'd stick by you when you were rich. I was like, that's very funny. Uh, but then when Rob's like, get away, I thought that Herbert was going to try and blackmail him, you know? He's oh, like, yeah. well, I, I know you're the invisible man or whatever. But then Rob is basically like, do whatever I say. Well, I'll just kill you. And then that's when he charges him to do the dog thing. Yes. As much as I think the Herbert scenes tend to drag on too long, I actually really like their chemistry here. I think that these two are fun to watch together. Yeah, this was good because Rob was basically like, you could do what I say or I'll drink your blood. And Herbert's like, no, my blood was no good and I'm not even as big as you. You'd barely get enough to turn half visible again. He's like, why don't I help you get the blood? Right. So with a thousand pounds, Herbert sets out to accomplish the task of getting rid of the dog. And I believe it's the next scene where Rob, he comes down for lunch and he joins Sir Jasper, Julie and Mark, of course, still using the name Martin Field. And they begin a discussion about this invisible man story because effectively Mark and Rob are meeting for the first time in this scene. And so he wants to know more about him. And, and Mark is, is explaining this invisible man he's been tracking and like he mentions that he thinks he drinks blood and that's where we get that line from rob like that sounds like uh like dracula that's that's out of date yeah he's like nowadays it would just be a 
regular old transfusion. That's what we'd call it. I quite like this sequence. They're talking about the Invisible Man, and Mark's kind of like, you know, what an amazing fantasy, but imagine if it were true. And then you have Rob sitting there, the Invisible Man, mm-hmm. kind of like boasting about what you could do if you were the Invisible Man, like gloating, you know? Like, think of the power to be able to steal, like, whatever you want. So it's it's a lot of fun. And then when they mention, like, oh, you know, like the like the drinking the blood and stuff, I think Mark says something like, what if you know, you change back at a very inopportune moment. And, like, just at that moment, Rob starts, like, phasing again, and, like, his blood transfusion starts wearing off. I love that moment because it reminded me of when they were talking about Son of Dracula in the last movie, and they're like, well, he could turn into a bat or a wolf or vapor. And then he turns into, like, vapor and comes in under the floor or behind the door. I was like, oh, that's so fun. I love when they do stuff like that. Yes. This whole scene, it kind of reminds me of... That scene in the the Dark Knight when Harvey Dent is having dinner with Bruce Wayne, talking about the Batman to the Batman, and then Bruce just has to play it off like, oh man, a guy drives around dressed like a bat clearly has issues. And Rob is kind of doing the same thing, although he's a little more defensive of the Invisible Man, I feel like. Almost as if he wants to be given the recognition for being the Invisible Man. Right, like it feels like he's about to slip up. Yes. Like he can't help himself. He's so proud. But you're right. At the end of that scene, he starts to fade. Almost like bring up Back to the Future again, like Marty McFly, you know, looking at the photo, his hand starts to disappear. And like, and I like how they, I mean, it's, it's primitive as an effect, but I kind of like it where, you know, his hand starts to dissolve and then his head, it's like they've given his hair like a powder, his face starts to look white. Yeah. You know what it reminded me of? Like, which would be cool to see in a modern Invisible Man, as you turn invisible, like first seeing like all the pigment disappear, turning ghost white first before your skin starts to turn invisible like that would be really cool to see in a modern way there's a great sequence here that i think was executed really well all things considered as rob is disappearing he is running up the stairs down a hallway and they've managed to like his his body is physically there and then his head is kind of transparent it looks far better than a lot of these other shots where it's obvious that they had him in like a black velvet bodysuit uh in clothes and then superimpose that onto the background right like that's how a lot of these shots are done but this shot it looked like everything was done all in the same space but I don't really know how they managed to keep his head on his body only partially visible. So I think it's pretty spectacular effect. I think the effects are top-notch. I think they're just used to doing it at this point. The only time I think I thought I might have seen something, it was during the setup for the flower face, you know? So I was like, oh, something's up. And then they end up putting the flower on the face. I was like, oh, okay, that's why. But that's really the only time I saw any kind of seams when it was coming to Invisible Man effects. So I think they've really got a master of it. Like, they picked the perfect angle when he unwraps his head earlier in the movie, you know, so that you don't have to see, like, the back of the bandages. And it's like that, see, they just are, like, learning, and and it still looked amazing. So, yeah, I agree. I love the way he looks, just the suit kind of running around the room sometimes. Yeah, top-notch. So now, with Rob invisible again, he needs a new victim to bring himself back to full visibility. And then as Mark is upstairs looking for him, he finds a note that says, Foster, I think your invisible man is in the house. My clue leads to wine cellar. Join me there. And that's signed by Field. That is Rob luring Mark down into the cellar. 
Yeah, for what will be the, well, I guess it's not the climactic battle, but it's like a really cool fight with the Invisible Man down in the wine cellar. No, this is it. There's less than 10 minutes left. So he lures Mark down into the cellar. There is a scuffle. Some really great effects work here as well. The only thing here is I wish Mark spoke more in this moment because he's finding out that there really is an Invisible Man and also that it wants to kill him. All he's really doing is throwing bottles of wine around the room, hoping to hit him with one of them. But in between all that, he's taking like these hits to the face and and cracks on the head. And and again, a really good performance of um, Alan Curtis just sort of like falling all over the place. Yes, I agree with you. As, As a reporter who's been following this story, to have it confirmed, it would have been cool to see him... I don't know. I have more to say about it, but the physical aspect of this scene, I think he he knocks it out of the park. I mean, he's got to really throw himself around this room. And I think all of it is choreographed really well and executed really great. Oh, he even has the foresight to turn the lights out. And then when they get flicked back on, he destroys the lights so they can't come back on. So like, I just, I love this, his physicality in this scene. Yeah, that was cool. Where he's like, ah, like something like trying to even the playing field, eh? Turning out the lights. But uh, before he can escape, Rob manages to smash a a wine bottle over Mark's head, knocking him unconscious. Gets him up on the table to begin the blood transfusion. And it's at this point we kind of take a look outside. Herbert has managed to uh, capture Brutus, but by no means has any real control over this dog. As he is struggling with Brutus, the chief inspector shows up with your favorite character actor in the film. So the cop shows up with this guy, Alf Perry, who gave a ride to the Invisible Man while he was visible, gave a ride to Robert Griffin, but picked him up near the house of the dead Dr. Drury. So he dropped him off in front of the Herricks. So the cops are following this lead. But it's just like this actor is killing it. Like he steals <laughs> the whole movie in this one scene by just acting so weird and coming out of nowhere. And like, why even make it a character we haven't seen before? Why not bring back a character that was introduced earlier, even if it was just for a second or whatever? There were other characters, but I was just so transfixed in this moment where I was like, I hope we see more of this guy going forward because very interesting. I was like, no offense to the guy or nothing but you're a very interesting looking fellow yes you should be playing like an igor or a fritz or something like that well i've got good news for you mike i'm looking at his imdb page and we will see him again in house of dracula oh my god that's hilarious so okay hopefully he's uh, more involved in on the monster side of things <laughs> so as as the entire group of people realizing that their invisible man is somewhere in the house they make their way down to the cellar and pretty much bash the door down this was kind of funny where griffin is doing the transfusion alone yes we, we get to see him how he's doing it with one arm yes and he is nearly there he is about half visible when the door gets broken down and brutus stampedes into this room and this is i mean this is like the climactic battle right i mean if it wasn't right right if, if right. it wasn't with mark it, it's definitely the one with brutus this dog this is the best dog uh, i think i actually wrote in my notes brutus is the best boy absolutely not just a good boy no 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 i mean brutus kills the invisible man yes never in a million years would i have ever in a billion years imagined one of these movies would end with a dog slaying the monster right uh just incredible loved that really great stunt work there with brutus he kills griffin 
And the, the rest of the group discover Mark. They realize that he's not dead. His pulse is very faint, but he is still alive. So they manage to, to break the door down and rescue him just in time. Yeah, and then there's that little scene at the end where um, Herbert is sort of at the end of explaining everything to everybody as to like what was going on on his end, you know? Yes. <laughs> and then we get the speech, a little bit of a speech by that Leland Hodgson's character. Was he like like the constable or whatever? Like he gets like that little moment at the end. But it reminded me at the end of Psycho where the guy comes in and tries to explain Norman Bates. Yes. And this guy's like trying to explain like what was going on in the mind of a psycho of the Invisible Man. Yeah, they're sort of talking about like his sanity, what might have happened to him. And the, the chief inspector believes his mind was warped by imaginary wrongs. He was a man fighting shadows. He's to be pitied, really. He probed too deeply in forbidden places. What a man earns, he gets. Yeah, and then they pan to the fire as yeah. if to be like, you know who else went to forbidden places? Prometheus. Basically, Who yeah. stole this, this here fire. Just put a button on it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he's, he's essentially summing up the themes of Frankenstein and that he meddled with things that were beyond his own understanding and he got what he deserved. We've, we've got all the major monsters represented here. Frankenstein there, all the vampire stuff. He, he has the wraps of the mummy, and yep. he's named the Invisible Man. So, like, all he needed to do was, like, play a violin at some point, and he could have been the Phantom. This is sort of continuing that trend. We've seen it before, where, in this instance, it's an Invisible Man movie, but it draws from Dracula, Frankenstein, the mummy... Uh, I think we've seen that before in one of the Mummy movies where it felt a little bit Dracula, maybe a little Frankenstein. Yeah. So it seems like Universal is just sort of like coming up with these scripts. They're almost like Mad Libs where they just kind of like throw in little elements from the stuff they know works and is popular to make something new. So it, it feels familiar, but also fresh at the same time. I kind of like that when it works here. I don't know that it works as well as some others, but uh, I mean, I think this one is still as, as disjointed as it is and, and maybe misguided in places. I do think that it has a fun concept. The effects are great. And there's some really fun performances from some of these character actors. Definitely ranks lower on my list for sure, but by no means a, a, a bad movie. No, no. I mean, way better than I thought. I, I just wish I could sort of dig deeper. Like, you know, in the in the past with the few in the past few movies, especially with like the war going on, while a lot of these are being filmed, we've sort of tried to find parallels to that as among right. other things along the way, looking at the universal films for subtext or what have you. And here my mind never drifted anywhere towards any of that stuff. You know, maybe it's because of like the very small scope of it, the very small number of characters involved, like the intimacy mm -hmm, of it. Mm -hmm. It just felt very shut off from the rest of the world, quite frankly. And maybe that's saying something about it. I don't know. Like it exists in its own little bubble in a lot of ways. Uh, the movie was released June 9th, 1944, mm -hmm. uh, which I thought was interesting because June 6th, 1944 was D-Day. D -Day. Yep. So, you know, we're at the, we're sort of the tail end World War II here, but you know, I didn't, nothing, none of that popped into my mind this time for any reason. So I was just, you know, curious about that. But otherwise, lots of interesting things here, twists and turns. You know, I, I wish there was more good than bad, but fortunately, some of that good stuff is so good that um, it 
elevates the movie for me. Um, I think there's some really great shots. The effects, John Carradine is definitely a standout. But again, the script is a bit wonky. I'm still more confused than I like to be most of the time. And, you know, quite frankly, was hoping for a bit of a bigger body count when it came to The Invisible Man. Uh, However, it was still a fun time and I definitely liked it and had a good time watching it. And I'm looking forward to whatever's coming next. Yes, agreed. Well, uh, with that, I think that's a good time for us to disappear. But don't worry, we'll be back to discuss Lon Chaney's return as the evil Chorus alongside John Carradine and George Zucco in 1944's The Mummy's Ghost. In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at MonsterMadePod, on Instagram and Facebook at The Monsters That Made Us, and you can email us at TheMonstersThatMadeUs at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Dan Cologne. Mike, where can listeners find you? You can find me on Twitter at the underscore Mikester, or you could find all the other shows I'm on at cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub, or at cageclubpod on Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to become a Patreon supporter, you can do so at patreon.com slash the monsters that made us. You can also support the show by giving us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. That helps other people discover the show. And we can't forget about our t-shirts on TeePublic. You can find the link for those in our aforementioned Twitter and Instagram bios. For all other things Cage Club related, just head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Stay spooky, everybody. Stay spooky, everybody.